your data, again, is meaningless for humans. Machines, of course, are pretty good at it. But for humans, we need someone to actually translate that data into something that we can understand. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Notes of Design. To help support our mission spread knowledge, we have a very special guest on today's episode. It was a great honor to host Manu Lima, who is a fellow of Royal Society of Arts and also named as one of the 50 most creative and influential minds by Creativity Magazine. Manu Lima is a founder of visualcomplexity.com and also presently working as senior UX manager at Google. And he's also a regular teacher of data visualization at Parsons School of Design. He has over 15 years of experience and has worked with companies like Google, Codec, Academy, Microsoft, Nokia, RGA, and Museum of Moving Pictures. Manuel is a leading voice of information visualization and has spoken at over 80 plus conferences, including TED, Lyft, Visualize, Art Electronica, Harvard, MIT, Ailes, and many more. He's been also featured in various magazines like New York Times, Science, Nature, Business Week, Creative Reviews, Forbes, and Seed Magazine, and many more. On this episode, we had a great conversation on what exactly is data visualization and why do we need to visualize data. Later that, we discuss on various techniques and process one must follow to represent data visually. Manuel had shared his insights and similarities between UX and DataVis. He also gave us some ethical practices that one must follow while handling data. Said with that, hope you guys enjoy this episode and I have a good news to share with you guys. So Notes of Design became the second most trending podcast in India and we've been trending charts in many more countries. So thanks to all the wonderful guests who have came and made this mission to spread knowledge possible. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday to get some great knowledge on various design topics from the design leaders across the world. Happy designing everyone. Hi, Manuel. Welcome to Nodes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Pleasure is all mine. So, Manuel, how's your day going? It's going well, yes. The weather has been getting better here in New York, even though there's a lot of craziness going around. I think uh, it's good. At least the weather is getting better. So, one, one positive thing. <laughs> if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there. Sure. My name is Manuel Lima. I've been involved in the design and data visualization community uh, for more than 15 years now. Uh, I kind of got started, I mean, I, I'm trained as an industrial designer, building physical products, right, like chairs and tables and, and all, all of that kind of objects. But then I really fall in love into data visualization uh, at some point. And that's become kind of a, a focus of mine for the past 15 years or so. I've also been very involved in the UX design community. And that's kind of like my nine to five job is at the moment being a UX lead at Google. And I've been there for almost five years now. Thank you so much, Manuel. So what was your journey into design and how did you start? What are your tips to the beginners that you want to give right now? It's a great question. Um, you never quite know how things start, really. I mean, it, it goes so far back in time that I don't really recall exactly there was not one single day that I woke, I woke up and said, you know, I want to become a designer. But I knew that I think I went from be, wanting to be a firefighter to wanting to be an architect. And so this was probably very early on in my in my life. I think maybe I was like maybe six or eight. Uh, I don't know exactly how old I was. But I think my family, part of my family has always been involved in, in arts and culture, architecture, uh, poetry. There was a lot of writing historically in my family. So I was definitely more inclined towards that 
type of thing, especially through my mom. There was a lot of like curious nature. She was a very curious person by default. So I learned early on to be inquisitive. And I think that was a really, that's still a quality that I appreciate in, in people in generally, but of course in designers. I think you really have to be curious and inquisitive to be a good designer, right? You have to wonder how things are made, how things are constructed, how things operate, right? You have to have that sort of wonder in your head constantly. And I think I had that a little bit in the beginning. I was obsessed with maps. This is again in a time that predates <laughs> GPS by by a few years. So we when once we traveled, we always use like physical maps. And I was obsessed by the object itself, right? And, and also the visual language that maps had, right? All the, the the icons that they had, all the sort of the visual metaphors that they employed, which also changed dramatically from sometimes country to country. So I was really obsessed about maps. And my I remember this cabinet of ours we had at home was filled with these maps from all over the world. And for me it was just a journey of graphic design, but also a journey about all the different places around the world. Right. And then I think my, my dad used to bring you all these funny objects that he discovered in his in his own business trips, you know, like this knife that turned into a fork and somehow converted into something else that you were not expecting. So for me, I was really early on exposed to these kind of like intriguing design objects. Um, and I think that was also like another catalyst. And then later on, I think maybe I was 16 when I read a book by Bruno Munari uh, called Design as Art. And I was absolutely obsessed by that book. And the book was really enticing because it really described design not as something that you see in a museum, right? But something that you have to create for the masses, right? You have to, a great designer is able to create a sign for a butcher's shop. That's kind of one of the lines in the book, right? And I absolutely love this idea of this pluralistic idea, this pragmatic, very um, operational driven concept of design which really tied with my idea of design, not again as something beautiful that you cannot even touch at a museum, but something that's practical that people actually use and it helps their lives in a substantial way. I think that's, oh yeah, so then this is like, I was maybe 16, right? I really like became obsessed with design. And then when I turned 18, then I applied to an industrial design uh, course for your degree. Actually, it's uh, well, it's old school. So it's like actually a six year degree, which is probably a little bit of a waste of time. But that's how it was like back in the day. And this was a six year degree in Lisbon, Portugal, studying industrial design. I had a blast just learning a lot about, you know, materials, engineering, uh, ergonomic. I think it really gave me a lot of the foundation thinking about design, you know, in a user centered way. And I think that led inevitably to UX, um, which is something that I did after my, my master's degree at Parsons School of Design in New York. Thank you so much, Manuel, for taking us through your wonderful journey. So what are your tips to the beginners? I think it goes back to what I was mentioning about being inquisitive. I think, you know, if you are born with it naturally, like that, great for you, right? So I would say foster that type of, of thinking, foster that type of, of behavior. I think it's a really critical one to be inquisitive, to be curious about things in general and about things in particular, right? Because for me, a great designer is one that is able to see the big picture of things, right? See the, the holistic view into a system, into a process, into a service, but also look at the granular details of that and, and improving at both scales, right? I think that's a key advantage. So being inquisitive for me is a tremendous trait. And of course, we can spend a lot of time debating about all the hard skills that you should have to become a designer, to be a great designer. But for me, as I sort of evolved my career, you know, working in, in different places, large and small, you know, I 
before Google, I worked at Microsoft. I worked at RGA, advertising agency. Nokia, back in the day when Nokia was actually a, a big player <laughs> in the mobile world. So I learned a lot from these experiences. But over the years, I came to realize that for you to succeed is not so much about the hard skills, which anyone can learn to a certain degree. It's really about the soft skills, right? I've seen so many amazing designers, tremendously talented, all the, the hard skills were in place, but then they were missing the soft skills, right? They were m missing maybe the curious nature, the ability to persist, you know, like sometimes you're going to have a lot of like doors, doors being closed in your face, right? So the ability to be persistent, to go after what you want, right? To know how to communicate that idea. You might have the best idea ever. If you don't know how to sell it, if you don't know how to persuade others that this is the best idea, it's meaningless, right? You really know how to communicate that. You really know how to sell this because you're always going to be selling it to someone, either your manager, your client, your stakeholder. There's always someone that you need to convince that this is a great idea in order to get funding, to get to get approval, to get you know published, to get <laughs> to actually get go to production. So there's always an implicit uh, idea of persuasion in, as part of the process. So I think it's some of these soft skills that I would love for people to worry more than just the hard skills uh, alone, right? So again, persistence, persuasion, curiosity, adaptability. Adaptability is a critical thing that I try to sort of screen every time I'm, I talk to candidates as well, right? Being able to adapt to a new environment, to a new condition, because we live in this ever-changing world and, and nothing is static. You know, change uh, is the norm. Right. So you need to know how to adapt to the circumstances. You cannot really become paralyzed every time you face a new challenge that you're not familiar with. Right. So there's multiple soft skills like that that I think are really important for young designers and for young people that want to pursue a career in design. Thank you so much, Manuel, for sharing yeah. us these great tips. So as you are like the top writer in DataWiz and you wrote three wonderful books out there, let's begin our discussion into data visualization. <laughs> Thank you. So what exactly is data visualization and why do we need to visualize data and what makes data visualization effective? Right. So I think why do we need data visualization? That's a great question. And, and I think maybe I will take you back in time for us to understand that, you know, we see data visualization maybe as an alternative to writing text, right? Which is something that you have, of course, to learn. And it's a process, right? Like no one is born with the ability to read an alphabet. You have to learn, right? And it takes many years. And if you think about the oldest written alphabet that we know today is the Sumerian cuneiform, which is roughly 6,000 years old. But humans have been communicating way before there was any sort of known written alphabet, right? So the use of images and symbols and visual representations precedes written language by many, many, many thousands of years, right? You can even argue that we are more inclined to actually read and interpret and communicate through images than we are through text. It's a much more recent invention, if you want to call that. So data visualization as a concept, if you want to be uh, really uh, holistic about it, it's not very new, right? We have been visualizing, communicating data or information, again, goes back way before we have used any written text. But it has become, of course, more of a focus lately in recent, in the past couple of centuries or so, mostly because the volume of data has, has been growing tremendously, right? So the need to make sense of that growth of data, this big data, as they call it now, is, of course, more acute now than ever. So why is it important? One of the reasons is that some of the data we deal today is meaningless for humans in the sense that it's really almost impossible for you 
as a human to read and make sense of that data. A lot of these data points are, again, numerical data points that absolutely make no sense if you were to read them in isolation. So that's one of the challenges is that data. And sometimes I always run across the data purists, right? There's always a data purist somewhere that says, hey, you should not really visualize this because you are distorting the data and you know you are ruining it somehow. But of course, the fact is that pure data, again, is meaningless. Like for humans, machines, of course, are pretty good at it. But for humans, we need someone to actually translate that data into something that we can understand. Now, that translation part is normally either through text or through images, right? Being a very simplistic way. So the great benefit of data visualization is to convert this data that is hard for humans to understand into something that is meaning meaningful, right? Into something that you can interpret, you can read, and you can think about it. You can deliberate. You can makes you think. And it goes back to this idea of converting information into knowledge. That's really my mission. That's the mission of everyone involved in this area, is making that conversion, making that transformation from data, information into knowledge. So that's the role of data visualization. And how we can be effective? Well, the effectiveness comes if that mission, that goal is, is achieved, right? If you create a data visualization that it's making the subject more complicated than it is, then most people don't really understand what you are actually representing. It's probably not as effective, right? An effective data visualization would be one that takes into account the data, understands the data pretty well, and is able to transform it right? To translate it into something that humans can make sense of and can reason with it. Then it goes into visual literacy, which is a really interesting uh, aspect, which is you can argue that, and this is maybe something that we could probably need like a, a separate podcast just for that topic alone, but it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic. I've been, I've been sort of debating about this topic for, for quite some time in the sense that somehow written language, again, going back to written language, we just we know that it takes years to master that process to be able to read text, right? And sometimes, you know, even after ten years, you don't really do it properly, right? So it's really hard to master that skill. But somehow we assume that interpreting, reading, and reading charts and visual metaphors somehow you don't need any sort of training whatsoever. Anyone can do it, and of course, it's it's part of the process because the imagery is so embedded in our systems, right? We have been doing this for such a long time that sometimes people don't think that they actually do require any training or any sort of mastery of that skill. When of course it's it's a lie. You really need to like educate yourself on not to read some of these some of these things because they are not as intuitive as as it might seem. And yes, intuitiveness is part of the 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 goal, right? Like you want to create something that people understand it at a really fast uh, pace and you don't doesn't require a huge learning curve. But that also limits the amount of things that you can explore as a visualizer. Thank you so much, Manuel, for giving us such great insights on DataWiz. So what are the various ways that one can start their journey into field of data visualization? I got started by the I, I can that actually I recall the exact moment in time that I fell in love with data visualization. And I, I it was kind of like I felt this was a calling. Right. And I was doing a Master of Fine Arts at Parsons School of Design. This was maybe back in 2004 at, in New York. And I remember a teacher of mine showing us this, this diagram. It's called the Understanding Spectrum. It's also called the Knowledge Pyramid, where data leads into information, information leads into knowledge, and knowledge ultimately leads into wisdom. And again, even though my background, as you know, was actually industrial design, I was absolutely so compelled to be part of that spectrum, specifically 
creating a bridge between information and knowledge. So I think if that's something that is inspiring for people, I think that's the first way to go, right? It's like, wow, I really want to be part of this movement because it is a movement in the sense that our ability to generate data has by far exceeded our ability to make sense of that data. So we need every human brain we can get all the to be part of this movement, be part of this community, and help us make sense of this growing volume of data. And especially when, you know, with big data, there's biases, there's a lot of issues now with data. And it's too easy if we don't have some control over it, if we don't have some solid understanding of what this data is doing, right? You run into a danger that it becomes fully automated to a point, again, we don't really know what's going on anymore. And that's definitely part of the things that data visualization can help is making the invisible visible and trying to make some of these systems are not as easy to understand. They are fairly complex, fairly intricate. Explain them in simple terms, right? In, in easier ways for us to understand humans. So I think apart from like many of the soft skills that I mentioned before or for people that want to become a designer, which applies, of course, to anyone venturing into the data visualization world, I think it's it's also this desire, again, to help out this, this again, this movement uh, that you can call it such in order to make data and convert data into knowledge. Thank you so much, Manuel. So what are the various techniques you follow to represent data visually? That's very varied. I mean, uh, there's a plethora of different approaches and tools you can take. Generally speaking, you know, and even for those who are, who are new to it, you can start, I mean, you can actually create your own data. By the way, data is not this like monster with seven heads. Like anyone knows what data is, right? Like if you say, you know, times of the day, for example, is our data points, right? You have lunch at 12, you have, I don't know, dinner at 7 p.m. Like all those things are data points. I mean, one of the, the great ways for you to actually start getting a sense of, of data and visualizing is by tracking your own patterns, right? You can actually build your own sort of data points, your own data lists, and try to visualize them in meaningful ways, right? That would be one quick experiment for anyone want, wanting, wanting to venture into this into this area. So that's one thing. But then, of course, data, when we talk about data, we talk about spreadsheets. Everyone knows what a spreadsheet is, right? You have rows and you have columns, right? And then rows are basically the things that you have. This could be a collection of books. This could be a collection of, I don't know, stones that you accumulate over, over time. And then the, the columns are the qualities of that thing, right? Which, again, you can add a lot of things if you depending on your collection. So let's say that you are gathering a collection of things, let's say books, right? And then, of course, some of the, the qualities could be the name of the author, the title, you know, ISBN, all these things that define what a book is. And then the list grows as you add more entries, right? As you add more uh, rows. So in essence, that spreadsheet that you are filling, it's what is called a data set. Now, it's not the only type of data set. There's like relational data sets and other things that are, you know, networks and trees and all that, the different varieties of data that exist out there. But generally speaking, a spreadsheet for the most part, for I would say the vast majority of cases is what we call a data set, right? So the next step for you to like collecting uh, a data set, either on your own or, or get it for someone else, then there's a lot of aspect of parsing and cleaning the data, right? Sometimes you are, you are lacking some fields, there's inconsistencies in the treatment of those fields. So you need to spend a lot of time just sort of cleaning the data, parsing it, making sense that everything is in order, right? Then a lot of the, after that is probably the, the, the next set, the next stage is really about, and that's the interesting one, to seeing, well, understanding what kind of goal you want, what is 
what is your ultimate goal? Like you're trying to, you have this data set. What is the ultimate message that you want to convey, right? Or what is the sort of the, the story that's underlying in this specific data set? And I think there's a lot of trial and error. That's a very sort of cyclical process there, which is trying to translate this data into meaningful visual patterns, right? That people can understand. And then it's about selecting the most meaningful, the most sort of the best sort of visual model for the data set that you have at your disposal. So I think those are the various stages. Um, and then, of course, you can add the stages of like making that chart or diagram that you're creating other interactive. You know, you can actually have filter. You can have different sort of ideas of, of what you want. Thank you so much, Manuel. So now, yeah. what are the various ways in which the database and UX bridge together? What are the ethical practices that one must look forward to? Oh, that's a great question. I like that, ethical practices. I think there's a few things to consider, right, when it comes to ethics. And 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 yeah, I mean, by the way, I actually, I love, uh, some people think, well, of course, even myself, I, I treat these as, as two separate entities, being UX and data visualization as two separate entities. But I think there's a, a huge amount of, of overlap between them, right, by far. And one of the overlaps that I have noticed over the years is all about principles. So I'm a little bit obsessed about design principles, right? These are level guidelines that can help you achieving a, a given process. And if you look at some of the, the critical UX design principles, right, they're actually very much aligned with data visualization principles. There's a, a huge overlap. And ethics comes at the same time, right? I think it goes back to the stages we were talking about. In my view, it comes in three separate stages when it comes to the ethical responsibility of, of a person doing data visualization. The first one is data collection, making sure that the data source is reliable and verifiable. Right. If you're using data, use it from an institution that, you know, or, or a source that is actually trustworthy. And whenever possible, you should give attribution to that data, right? Where it was collected, you know, who is providing it, right? So attribution is really important. It, it also creates, you know, it's, you legitimize the, the process in its own if you are transparent about it. Then the second point I would say is data analysis. And this is actually something that happens normally behind the scenes. And a lot of people don't really know what happens with the data. Because again, sometimes you remove things, you add things, right? There's a lot of like uh, opportunity for biases to cripple in, specifically in this process of data analysis. So it's really important that you are clear and transparent with the audience about how did you treat the data, right? First of all, you have, of course, identified where this data came from. And then it's like, how did you treat this data, right? Did you remove things? Did you add things? If so, what for? And then finally, the third stage that you need to be really ethical about is visual encoding, right? So do not use visual metaphors to intentionally hide or confuse the user, right? We know that there's a lot of opportunities for you to, like, Again, be biased in the ways you can actually communicate information through visual metaphors. So I think you should, that's another part of your ethical responsibility is, is be honest, right, uh, about the data that you are doing. And don't confuse the truth. Don't lie. Don't mislead users. That's one of the things you should never do. It's part of your uh, moral and ethical responsibility. Yes, Manuel. Thank you so much. So on a concluding note, we would love to recommend you three books and three people who inspire you the most in this domain. Yeah. So three books. That's one of the hardest things to actually pick books. I can give you three that were kind of like pivotal in my life. So as I mentioned, Design as Art by Bruno Munari uh, was a critical book. I read, the, I read it for the first time when I was maybe 16. 
I think it was really one of those books, those moments of where I read it and it really changed kind of like my life, the way that I was looking at it. Design as Art by Bruno Monari. The other one that I would mention, The Atlas of Cyberspace. This is a very unknown book. Uh, this was like up in the 90s, I think it was published, but it was a huge reference. So this was, a, I think, the first maybe book that was trying to map and visualize the different uh, growth areas of the internet. So the Atlas of Cyberspace, it was just a fantastic journey. They had a website as well. And I remember browsing through it and I was obsessed with it, right? And then it was really the catalyst for me to put together visualcomplexity.com, uh, an old website that, that tries to gather many different examples of, of people visualizing networks of all types. That was a huge influence for me. So I have to name that book, The Atlas of Cyberspace. And then the third one is Universal Principles of Design. I like to say that as a designer, if I was to save, if my apartment was cutting on fire and I had to save one book, <laughs> I think this would be it. Because I love the book. It's, it gives you like now, I think the latest version, 125 different universal design principles that you can apply to UX, uh, graphic design, industrial design, architecture every f field. I mean, it's a fantastic journey into cognitive science, into behavioral economics, into a variety of different, you know, really understanding the human brain, really understanding the amount of biases that all of us have in, inside of our, our own brains. No, I think that's it. I mean, I think the authors are kind of associated with it. You know, Bruno Monari was definitely a key influence. I think Christopher Alexander, who did the pattern language, was also another critical influence in my life. I remember... Uh, reading Stephen Johnson as well, the, the book Emergence, that was a, a, a huge inspiration for me. Barabasi runs the complexity uh, uh, lab in a Northeastern university has also been like a huge in influence for me. There's there's so many people, it's hard to pinpoint all the names. Uh, ben Schneiderman has been a huge influence in my life. There's been uh, a lot of people, uh, of course, some are still with us, others are not unfortunately with us anymore. And uh, so the list is, is almost endless. Thank you so much, Manuel, for your time. And it's a great honor to host you today on our show. And thanks for joining the Mission Spread Knowledge. It was my pleasure, my absolute pleasure. And thanks for the invite again.